At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and when the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed creatures, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter <coughs> invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, people went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you've sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. 
Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know that what happened through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speak in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Lord, you have directed us tonight to this extremely important chapter in the Acts. Help us to understand it and to apply it to our day and situation through Jesus our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> you know how it is that when you're climbing hills or climbing uh, a mountain, you, you suddenly get to the crest and you can look back uh, over the ground that you've covered and you can look forward to your distant goal. Well, Acts 10 and 11 are that crest. They are so important in the plan of Acts that the story of Cornelius' conversion is told twice over. That gospel story had begun in Acts with just 11 discouraged disciples. Then it spread to 120, then to 3,000. Then it spread in Judea and Samaria. Samaritans were sort of half Jews, didn't like each other much. But the point is that up till then, the gospel had been entirely for Jewish people. It was the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel. Now, with, with the centurion Cornelius, we see the conversion of a Roman. And from now on in Acts, we have the good news spreading through the Greco-Roman world, the Gentile world, until it reaches its climax at the end of the book in Rome itself, 
the capital of the world. It is a critical moment, this conversion of Cornelius. What is really going on? Let's try and unpack this extremely rich story and see how it speaks to our attempts to evangelize and to bring about conversions today. First of all, there is a hidden encounter. It looks very much like a simple encounter between Peter and Cornelius, but it's much deeper than that. It is a spiritual battle between the purposes of God and the designs of Satan. Just put yourself in the devil's position for once. It may not be too difficult. But uh, just think how frustrated the devil must have been. At last he had got Jesus where he wanted him, killed. But then comes the resurrection. The handful of terrified disciples, he's got them locked up in an upstairs room with a key on the inside. And then they burst out into an exciting army full of the Holy Spirit and of zeal. His tactic of scattering Jerusalem believers had merely spawned a network of new churches all over Judea and Samaria. Even the martyrdom of Stephen had backfired because it led indirectly to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And we all know what a trouble this guy was to the devil. So Satan must have been pretty cheesed off by this stage. Now he comes up with a simple but highly effective plan. If he couldn't stop the forest fire of Christianity, he could perhaps limit its spread. He could contain the fire in the little fireplace of the tiny country of Judea so that he might yet hold on to the souls of the Gentiles, the vast majority of the world's population. He wants to ring-fence the gospel to the religious folk and stop it spreading out. Not a bad tactic. It's still one he uses very widely. It's still effective. But Satan is no match for our God. God is so passionate that people of every race and class and color and background should be saved, that he sends a vision to the non-Christian Cornelius and a vision to the Christian Peter. And when we come on to Peter's sermon in the latter part of the chapter, we can see that God is tremendously active in this. And it's stressed very strongly. God sent the message of peace. God anointed Jesus with the spirit and power. God raised him from the dead. God chose us as witnesses. God told us to preach. God ordained Jesus as judge. And finally, God sent his spirit on this Gentile household. 
We are thinking of models of evangelism in Acts these evenings. That's why I think the book has been chosen. Well, a very important lesson for us to learn, and I think we need to learn it, is that there is a real battle going on behind the scenes between God and the supreme adversary. If we don't reckon on spiritual battle and engage in it, we will not be effective in evangelism. Fruitfulness is God's work. Success comes not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And perhaps that is why prayer is so underlined in this story of the conversion of Cornelius. You've got the conversion, yes, but Cornelius is praying, Peter is praying, and then God acts. A memorable little phrase that I came across this week is that evangelism without prayer is like a bomb without a detonator. And prayer without evangelism is like a detonator without a bomb. We need the two. Well, that's the backcloth. That's the hidden work that's going on behind the scenes. And now we, we meet an unlikely worshipper or an unlikely convert. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. In our language, that is a regular army captain. And he was a member of the occupying forces in Palestine of that day. Think of it. This man was in the pay of Pilate's successor. He was working out of the same barracks as the soldiers who executed Jesus. To be sure, he was drawn to the God of Israel. A lot of people were moving towards a vague monotheism in those days. But he was a most unlikely candidate for the next Alpha course. But then so was fisherman Peter. So was Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Tough customers, all three of them. Yet once they were converted, they became big leaders. Why not ask yourself, who is the most unlikely Christian amongst your pagan friends? And ask them to the Alpha that is starting very soon. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That is a basic principle in rugby football and in various other areas of life. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Let's be bold. This man was actually wide open underneath his armor and underneath his uniform. But you'd never have guessed it of this army captain. Don't neglect the person that you think too difficult. Give it a shot. The next thing I see in this remarkable story is a false assumption. Cornelius was actually a very good man. In verse 2, we discover that he was devout. He was God-fearing, that's to say, he was hanging around on the edge of the Jewish synagogue. He was generous to the poor 
He was prayerful. He was a man with high standards, we read in verse 22, and a great reputation. An admirable man. Now, when you see a really admirable man like that, you don't think he needs to become a Christian. After all, he's an admirable man. And people say, like verse 35, in every nation, whoever fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. And people take that to mean that good people are okay. They don't need Christ. That is not what the passage is saying. Look at verse 34, the previous verse. It's saying God has no favorites. And the whole point is that Cornelius's Gentile nationality was acceptable to God, so he had no need to become a Jew. Not that his righteousness was adequate so that he had no need to become a Christian. I think that's so important, I want to repeat it. Cornelius's Gentile nationality was acceptable, so he had no need to become a Jew. Not that his own righteousness was adequate, that he didn't need to become a Christian. If his honest pagan religion had been enough, why should he get tangled up with the synagogue? If the synagogue had been enough, why did he need Christian conversion? If Cornelius needed Christ, and clearly he desperately needed him from this story, then so do our charming, civilized, generous, upstanding North Oxford friends. They need Christ too. Let's not give in to this false assumption that because they're nice, they're okay. Here's the next thing that I see from this remarkable story. I'm brought face to face with a conservative leader, an overly conservative leader. Jesus, the Gospels tell us, had entrusted the keys of the kingdom of God to Peter. And we see him unlocking that door into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost, loads of people flowing through it. But Peter was extremely reluctant to open the door to anyone who was not a Jew. Peter disliked change. When Jesus announced that he must die and rise again, Peter tried to talk him out of it. When Jesus had been transfigured on the mountain top, Peter had tried to build three tents so as to preserve the experience without change. When Jesus announced that all meat was kosher, as he did in Mark 7, Peter insisted that the Jewish food laws were still sacrosanct. Peter was a typical first century Jew. He was trapped in the tradition that had grown on Judaism, rather like barnacles grow on the bottom of a ship. Traditions like not going into a Gentile house or not having a meal with a Gentile. This man, Peter, was highly suspicious of change. 
And you often find that attitude in church leadership. You sometimes, I think it's uh, very much like what's sung very often at the end of a psalm, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. That's how some churches work. Or to put it more cryptically, nothing new can be true. And God has to break that attitude of excessive conservatism before he can use Peter to the full. Hence, the letting down of the sheet from heaven and Peter having to learn that he could not call anything or anyone unclean. And then comes the knock on the door down below and he has to put it into practice. I thank God that in this church, we've got a lot of flexibility. We have four different styles of worship on a Sunday uh, and another one in Cutslow. But even here, I suspect there may be areas where we cling too much to the past and how we've always done it. How should we do it next week? Well, how do we do it last week? It's very easy to think like that. I wonder, for instance, if a tramp would feel at home in St. Andrews. I come next to a double vision. This story is not just about food laws being irrelevant, or even the conversion of Cornelius, though it is about both of those things. But it's also about something much more important, God's plan of salvation for the whole world, which must not be wrecked by the prejudices of Judaism, the restrictive practices of the Jews. Those restrictions had been right in Old Testament days in order to establish this little tribe of the Jews as God's special people in the midst of a sea of polytheism and immorality. They needed this narrow, uh, fenced-off um, way of operating. Though there were hints, even in the Old Testament, that Israel was meant to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. But they never were. But now, now the moment has come for that light that had been hidden in Judaism to shine out widely into the secular world round about. And you say, well, God contradicts himself. He says one thing in the Old Testament and another one in the New. It's not so. Let's come to the high street in Oxford. And there's a mum on one side, and there's her six-year-old on the other side of the road. And there's all the buses and cars going to and fro. And she says, stop, stay there. And when the lights change and the buses grind to a halt, she says, come now. And the little one comes belting across the road. Is that inconsistent? Not at all. It's right for the particular time. It was right for the child to stay, and then it's right for the child to come. And so it was, with God's restrictive advice in the Old Testament, and now wanting to spread it out to the Gentile world uh, in the New. And to rub this lesson in, that race and religion and class and background are no barrier to coming to Christ, 
God gives a double vision. One to Cornelius, preparing him to welcome this fisherman from down the road. And one to Peter, smashing his prejudices and preparing him to take an adventurous new initiative. It was so important that God had to provide a vision for both lots in order to get the message across. And from that I see two things. Firstly, I see that God frequently in Scripture and often still does speak through visions. Do not despise drive uh, dreams or visions. God can speak through them. It's wise to share them with someone else and to check it out. But God can get through in that way. Many, many Muslims all over the world are being converted through dreams in which they see Jesus Christ. In my day as rector of St. Aldate's, we did a whole massive reordering of the church, stimulated by the vision of one person on the PCC. I had a student from Ghana at one stage when I was principal of St. John's Nottingham, and this man told me of a vision from God that saved his life. He had a vision, he had to go the next day down to a, 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 another part of the country, which was some distance away, and um, he was on, on, on his bike, and um, he saw in his vision at one spot in the journey, people jumping out to throw him to the ground, rob him, and probably kill him. And so uh, he went on the journey the next day, and when he got to that point, he was mighty careful. He had eyes all over his head. And sure enough, the people did jump out. But sure enough, he got away from them. God can speak through visions. We're so rationalistic that we write off one half of our minds. And I think we need to learn not to do so. The other thing I learned from this is that prejudice is hateful to God. I'm sure this Roman officer was pretty prejudiced about having a smelly fisherman into his house. And I know that Peter was extremely prejudiced about ever going there and having a meal there. The word prejudice, a couple of Latin words which mean making up my mind before I look at the evidence. Do we have prejudices? I suspect Deep down, we have some lurking away. I keep stumbling across mine and seeing if I can do something about them. Have we got a prejudice against Roman Catholics? I used to have when I was young. Do we have a prejudice against Muslims? Do we have a prejudice against personally getting involved in evangelism? Do we have a prejudice against certain types of people? These prejudices are hard to get rid of, and they're harder still if we don't face up to them and bring them from the murky depths of our personality into the light and have a look at them. The vision of the sheet let down from heaven with all these non-kosher animals in had to be repeated three times to get through to Peter. And the, the, the translation in the NIV is, is very civilized. Um, I forgot what it is now, where is it? 
Peter says, surely not, Lord. <laughs> he didn't. He said, no way, Lord. That's what the, the, the original word is. No way. Isn't that ironical? You call him Lord, and then you say no way when he tells you something. Jesus asked a question in his ministry. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Very easy, isn't it, to do that? But prejudice has to go if we're going to be any use to God. Like Peter, I need to learn not to call anyone impure or unclean. I need to get off my high horse and get down alongside. Just two more things from this lovely story. It's a living story. Once Peter had overcome his prejudice and proved it by offering hospitality to the centurion's servants, and hospitality so often paves the way for the gospel. It opens people up, it warms their hearts and feeds their tummies. The great thing, hospitality, God uses it. Well, he, he got round to that, and then he travels next day the 30-odd miles to Caesarea. And he breaks his taboo by entering the centurion's house and eating with the centurion. And he found the house full of the centurion's relatives and friends. And so he says, this is too good to be true. I will tell them the good news. That's obviously what this sheet from heaven is all about. I was visiting years ago when I was a young clergyman, and as I knocked on the door, and a per person opened, opened the door, and I went in and I found it was packed with people. And they said, uh, so-and-so has died, and we're having a, a funeral wake. Would you like to go and view the body? And I said, no, I don't think so. I'd rather speak to you guys who are alive. And I spoke on, of course, death and Jesus as the resurrection. The Lord had provided me with a ready-made congregation of unbelievers. It was a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. And that's the sort of situation that uh, confronted Peter uh, when he got to Cornelius' house. And his message is fascinating. Although it's an entirely different context from preaching to the Jews at Pentecost and so on, the message is substantially the same. This Roman group gets the same message that he had preached on the day of Pentecost, as far as we can tell from the summary that is presented here in chapter 10. Indeed, um, it is almost a summary, a sort of pill-sized summary of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel begins in the same way as Peter's address did and end just before where Peter ended. Fascinating when you remember that Mark was a senior associate of Peter and they worked closely together. It's interesting that it is not what you often find in evangelical preaching. Lots of heavy words ending in Asian, like justification and sanctification and salvation and all those other Asians. None of that stuff in it at all. It's a story. It's a story about what God has done through Jesus. 
It's a story in which Peter and all Christians are caught up. And he invites Cornelius and his colleagues to get caught up in it too. Twice in telling this brief story, he says, we are witnesses. We are part of the story. And you and I are part of this story that we proclaim. And I think we often make it difficult by all these abstract nouns and things that we use. Instead of using the story. In a postmodern age, there is nothing that communicates so effectively as a story. Because meta-narratives are deemed to be out. Big stories are supposed to be out. But the story of we are witnesses, of what we have experienced, of what God has done, why, that's very powerful. And I think that this is a real way ahead for us. We face a lot of skepticism these days. We cannot prove our case any more than the atheists can prove their case. But we can tell the most marvelous story that the world has ever heard. And Peter summarizes it here. God loves this world so much that Jesus came. He taught. He healed. He died on that terrible cross. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus will be the final judge. And we are caught up in that story. We can tell that story, can't we? We can give our witness to its truth. And we can offer the forgiveness of sins that Jesus died to procure and which Peter was bold to offer here. Do think of telling the story and adding your testimony. It's powerful. Let's use it. And here's the final thing in this story. There's lots more in it, but I don't think your patience would uh, last that long. But let's just have a look at the final thing. There was an amazing response in this story. A fascinating response to the gospel. What intrigues me here is that Peter had not got to the point in his preaching of showing how to become a Christian. He didn't on the day of Pentecost either. And so they said, oh, what shall we do? Oh, so good as me. I've forgotten to explain what to do. Right, you must repent and you must believe. And you must ask the spirit of the living God to come into you. Here, he hadn't finished either. And the Holy Spirit visibly came upon the people who were there. And they were filled with the Spirit, and baptism followed. With the gift of tongues to make it absolutely obvious that these Gentile believers were accepted in precisely the same way as the Jewish believers had been accepted at Pentecost. I have twice in my ministry seen the Holy Spirit fall, obviously, upon uh, groups of people when I hadn't finished explaining the way to Christ to them. Brilliant! You just sit and laugh at it. You say, wow, this is a reminder that God does the converting. And I'm just the donkey that, that bleats. That's all we are. We're the messenger boys and girls. He is the 
he is the, um, the one who does this work of conversion. And it's lovely when he manifestly leads people with joy to him um, when we haven't even explained to them uh, how to respond. Um, but why this stuff about tongues here? Why does Luke mention it here as he mentions it in Acts 2? Well, let's look at it. He doesn't mention the gift of tongues always accompanying conversion in the Acts, not at all, only on three occasions. He does it here, and he does it in Acts 2. Why? I think, as I reflected on this, that in Acts 2, there needed to be a very powerful evidence of change amongst his Jewish hearers, that something new had broken into their lives. And here is what's been called the Gentile Pentecost. Here is the coming of the Spirit upon a non-Jew, and that needs to be demonstrated to all and sundry, so that nobody could miss it, that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. I think it's saying that if the Holy Spirit really inhabits our lives, whether we have that gift of tongues or not is, is not the main point. The main point is that if the Spirit really inhabits our lives, it should make a visible difference. Now, we're not too keen on that. Not in the 21st century. Bible reading? Yeah. Prayer? Yes. The Sunday service? Yes. But we treat being filled with the Holy Spirit as an optional extra. And it is not an optional extra. As Paul writes to the Galatians, it's the very reason why Jesus came to earth that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so perhaps at the end of this service, it might be appropriate to come and pray with some of the people who will be here, to pray for the courage to be evangelists at this upcoming Alpha course and invite some of the tough people that we've been terrified to ask. It might be that we want strength to actually pray and engage in this spiritual battle. It may be that we long for a spiritual gift from the Lord to make us palpably and visibly different and clearly belonging to Him. Let's not settle for something less than God offers. It's time to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh and to live daily in our, in our lives. And so that then, by his power, we may first perceive and then grab the opportunities that he puts before us. And having had the Pope here this past week, and having had such incredible covering in the uh, media, it is just dead easy to talk about Jesus Christ on the basis of that, and to, usher, to invite people to an Alpha course where they could really suss it out for themselves. Let's ask the Holy Spirit 
to come and banish our fears and to drive us out into being changed people and enthusiastic inviters. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story, this crest where we can look back and look forward in the Acts of the Apostles. And as we look forward to our Gentile scene, where so many people around us are strangers to your love, we ask that we may not be as reluctant as Peter to get involved. Teach us to follow Peter in praying, but not to follow him in being so unwilling to open our mouths to invite into your kingdom people who do not know you. So Lord, on this Sunday night, we ask that that Holy Spirit that flooded the household with Cornelius may flood our lives afresh and will fill us with zeal and power, with humour and wisdom to be your ambassadors in today's world. For Jesus' sake. Amen.